You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Joy Jordan-Lake on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called Under a Gilded Moon, and what an exceptional book. Uh, you know, as we're wrapping up this year, Joy, um, what what a great book. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for what you have brought into the world. Uh, welcome to the show. So much hank you you're making my day <laughs> <laughs> that's our goal here that's our goal um joy we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller what a great question to begin with um well this is a shout out to all elementary school teachers because my first first two memories um one was in fourth grade and um, Mrs. Gross was her name, asked us to write a poem. Can't even remember what the exact assignment was, but um, all I remember, I was this incredibly, I mean, pathologically shy kid. And um, she took up all the poems and then she chose one and read it to the class and posted it on the bulletin board. And it was my poem and I couldn't believe it. And it was one of those moments where I knew I was often the kid who got tongue tied or had no idea what to say or didn't know how to, you know, jump into conversations. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, through her, I'd been able to communicate with people and my classmates were so kind. And all I remember, it was, it was about a buck, lots of, you know, with this lovely rack of antlers standing in the snow. That's all I remember about the poem. <laughs> but, you know, she gave me this vision of, oh, this is a way even as a really shy kid, I could put my thoughts in a, a way that other people could understand them. And and my second memory was of my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Buckshorn, who was a legend in my little town. Um, and she actually um, one day put an article on my desk very quietly. I'd never told anybody I wanted to be a writer. I just was a voracious reader because I was sick a lot. And um she put this article on my desk and she had scrawled on the top. This is for you for one day when you grow up to become a writer. And how she knew, I have no idea, but just one of those elementary school teachers that changes your life. So anyway, those are. I love that. I love that so much. And I, I especially love that your two memories uh, revolve around teachers who offered encouragement to you because you know, as writers, a lot of our time is spent in, in a room by ourselves with a computer. And, it, you know, there can be some pretty dark days, but it's it's those little pieces of inspiration and motivation that in, invariably we draw back on. And, uh, you know, it, it, it took nothing for that teacher to offer that encouragement to you. And these are obviously things that you've held on to for uh, for quite a number of years. And I, I just love those stories. Those are great ways to start conversations. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. It changed everything for me. And um, yeah, just what, what beautiful insight and what beautiful caring on their parts. And, and you're so right about 
the isolated life of a writer. To me, that's one of the hardest parts. Is it to you? Well, it is, um, you know, but the, the, the upside of that is 2020 has, has not been a lot different for, for a lot of writers. We all have stories of how the, the lockdowns have affected us and, and, and things like that. But, you know, day to day life uh, of most writers, things are, are kind of the same, um, you know, without the, the other connections that we get to have, but, um, you know, that, that. The good side of that is not a lot's changed. Um, Joy, you uh, you got a master's degree uh, in in theology and English. Is that right? I did. I did. Oddly enough, I'm a bit of a bit of a peculiar bird. And then I went on with the English and got another degree um, in English lit. Uh, but but I did. It's an yeah. strange combination. Well, it, it, on the surface, it may seem strange, but uh, what? What was the connection there for you? What what was your draw to theology first off? You know, I I have just been always fascinated in books or conversations with friends, um, just across life, and kind of the big questions. I guess we could call them, you know, um, forgiveness or um, betrayal or um, just sort of these huge topics, and um, it's just sort of wherever someone lands with faith or no faith, I'm fascinated, you know, whether it's the French existentialist, you know, if it's Camus or someone isn't coming from a no faith perspective, but very, um, very clearly through in his writing, I'm fascinated. I'm all in. Or if someone um, writes about um, redemption in some way, you know, of a, of a character or um, just the, the struggle, the human struggle to forgive. You know, I'm someone who could hold on to a grudge for 13 years until <laughs> that hurt my feelings 13 years ago, you know, um, but much less these huge. My last novel was set in Charleston and and had to do partly with the shooting um, in 2015 at um, at Emmanuel. Um, but just as, you know, someone who's really been devastated by a loss. How do you forgive? So that's just been a lifelong interest of mine. Um, so theology and um, and so and those are the you know those are the books I'm really drawn into um, and anyone who really kind of goes deep into a character and deep into the struggle to be human you know what does that look like? Well, you might say that writers um, have uh, that that really good writers have great insight into the human condition and their characters exude empathy even. Even when a character may be unlikable, there, there's something about a writer that's able to connect you with a character on the page. There, there takes a certain level of empathy to do that. And, and maybe theology is, is not a bad uh, uh, you know, thing to study if you want to understand the human condition, how we relate to one another, you know, what our, what our spiritual connections are. Um, you know, while on the surface they may seem disconnected, that there may be a, a closer connection there than than some of us might want to admit. Right. I think you're right. I think you're right. It's really, um, you know, it's the heart of, of any writer. I mean, I admire writers who can just do a fast paced thriller and, you know, have me turning pages and, you know, staying up till three in the morning. I mean, that's its own kind of admiration for me. Um, but the writers who go deep into a character and why we do what we do and, 
why we intend to do one thing and yet do another? And um, why do we betray each other? Or why do we sacrifice ourselves, you know, sometimes for someone we've never met? And those kind of issues I'm just fascinated by. Absolutely. Um, Joy, you uh, you went on to get a doctorate in, in English, um, as you mentioned earlier. Um, did you have you been teaching? Uh, are, are you a professor? You know, I have over the years as an adjunct professor, sometimes full time, um, sometimes part time. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where it, the um, it's not the fast track to fame and fortune, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> I, love teaching. I really love teaching. and. Um, really miss getting to teach. I'm not teaching right now, but um, it sort of got to the point when my books um, started to take more time in a good way and um, began selling faster and I wanted to write more and faster. Um, I sort of had to make a decision. I had three kids at home still at that point, two of whom were teenagers. And um, I was between teaching and writing, I was doing sort of 80 hour weeks and just needed to scale back. But I, I'm hoping in the future, you know, if only um, whether just part time, a class here and there or uh, workshops or retreats, that kind of thing, because I do. I love I hate grading, you know, especially in any creative subject. You just never want to put anything. But you go keep up the good work. <laughs> you want to encourage even if you know someone can improve, we can all improve. So. Right. Um, I, but I love that interaction and I love those moments in a classroom when, um, a new writer thinks that they're terrible and, you know, they've never gotten any affirmation for their writing. And that moment when an entire class turns to them, just sort of with the breath gone saying, this, you know, and just, oh, I just love those moments. So I miss that of just watching kind of a writer be born, you know, right. So, those are fantastic moments. Absolutely. Um, Joy, looking over, uh, looking at your fantastic website, by the way, what a great website. Um, looking at your back catalog of books, um, your your new book, Under a Gilded Moon, um, is, a, is a fantastic piece of historical fiction. But looking at your back catalog, I see historical fiction. I see some nonfiction. Um, the, lots of your, your interests seem to be varied. Let, let's put it that way. Um, what is it that draws you to a new project? Um, I'm, I'm fascinated and I know people get sick of hearing me talk about this, but I'm fascinated with the beginnings of a thing. Um, those, those, those first inklings that the kernel of an idea that grows and grows and then becomes a thing, but before it's a thing, it's a, a kernel of a thing. Um, what, what are the beginnings of projects like for you? Uh, so what a great question. Um. Yes, I'm fascinated too. Anytime I hear a, a writer speak, um, yes, sometimes it it starts with a footnote. Um, my uh, most expensive and probably least read book is um, an academic text for Vanderbilt University Press, and that one just came. That was my doctoral dissertation. That one just came literally out of a footnote in something else I was reading. And it referred to these, you know, novels written by women um, in opposition to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And there were pro-slavery novels. And I thought, what the heck? You know, I've never. Right. Like this is a genre? <laughs> I do, do, right? I mean, oh, my gosh. So that was a deep dive that, that went a long time into this really obscure topic. But it was 
fascinating in the way that kind of a horror movie is fascinating. Um, and sometimes it's um, out of that came A Tangled Mercy, one of my historical novels. Actually, when I was supposed to be writing that doctoral dissertation, I got <laughs> sidetracked in researching this novel. So that that one uh, is where that one came from. And and um, under a gilded moon, uh, one, one of them um, came from when I was struggling to balance kids and career. So rather than go pay for therapy, I just asked other I. I announced that I was writing a book and got someone to acquire it in proposal stage and then just went around and asked nosy questions of people, you know, like, how are you doing this? How are you trying to balance kids and career? And um, that's where that one came from. It was total, total therapy. Um, and uh, but under a gilded moon, um, do you mind if I tell a short story? Yeah, please. Um, that one, the very the first seat of it, I grew up. Um, going to North Carolina in the summers a lot as a kid, hiking and going to camps and all. And um, then as a young adult, worked for several different camps. Camp, my, my best job title ever was head sailing instructor on Lake Eden at Camp Rockmont for Boys in Black Mountain. <laughs> it was one of those jobs where you just go, I don't know why they're paying me, but I'm just going to keep quiet and showing up. Um, but it um, one evening had just finished work on the lake and was coming out. I was still, you know, kind of damp and had fish fertilizer in my hair and, you know, <laughs> friends sort of old ratty cutoff shorts. And some of my coworkers came running by and said, come with us, come with us. All of us who were in charge of the sports, all the skill heads were all invited to dinner tonight at the um, house of the camp owner's son's girlfriend. Oddly enough, and I thought, well, you know, free pizza, and I don't have to compete with a bunch of adolescent boys, you know, to eat dinner like I normally did, kind of trying to stab a, you know, stab a chicken breast um, out from under a bunch of twelve-year-olds. So I thought, well, great, okay, I don't, I don't know this person, and I don't know where we're going, but I'm, I'm all in. So I jumped into my '79 Mercury Zephyr and followed the crowd, and we got to the gates of Biltmore Estate, and I thought, huh, okay, but I didn't plan on paying for a tour. Biltmore, don't have any money with me. And um, everything I owned, you know, could have fit into that Mercury's effort at that season of my life. But they, the guard just waved us on through like we were, you know, somebody. And we wound all around Biltmore Estate, ended up at this lovely little house and went inside and, and met our hostess, a, a charming woman named Deanie, who was my age. We were both like 20, 21. Charming person, very down to earth. We sit down to eat pizza. I'm chugging back some Diet Coke and I'm, I look out and there's this gorgeous plate glass window with a view of the Biltmore house itself. This 250 room, essentially American palace um, built in 1895 by George Vanderbilt. And, um, and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of interesting because my view and my apartment at that stage of life was like half underground with a sort of half window that, window that looked up into the sort of undercarriage of the cars in the parking lot. And here I was looking at Biltmore House thinking, interesting. Okay, we're the same age and this is Deanie's view. Okay, good for her. Wonder why. And finally, one of my coworkers turned to me and said, oh, you don't know? Let me clue you in. This is Deanie Cecil and she and her brother will be inheriting Biltmore Estate one day. <laughs> so um, I, as usual, was, was the last to understand what was going on. Um, but I sat there looking out in that gorgeous estate and thinking both, wow, 
you know, I'm feeling kind of out of place in my ratty shorts and grungy t-shirt. Um, but also just being fascinated that her great, great, great grandfather, George Vanderbilt, would have chosen this multimillionaire from New York, could have built a house anywhere on the planet, literally. He'd traveled widely. And I was just fascinated that he had chosen these very mountains that I loved so much. I just felt this, I've always felt this magnetic pull. So I was just so intrigued by what sort of person he might have been. And I was intrigued with the house itself and thinking that would be a great place for a novel, especially maybe a mystery novel someday. So that was the first seed of that one. I love that. Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one -on -one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com um, Joy... On the shelf behind you, because I can see your bookshelf, uh, on the top there, I see uh, Lauren Willig um, with the summer, um, I, can't, I can't quite make out the title, but I know the book, the summer, uh, the summer country, I believe it is. And then Fiona Davis, who's a great friend of ours. Uh, and then uh, is that uh, Beantown Girls um, uh, by Jane Healy, if I'm mistaken, some fantastic representatives of uh what's going on in historical fiction right now and um you know with under a gilded moon um you are firmly planting your feet in this genre and uh and, and making a splash there as well um historical fiction is one of the the biggest sellers right now and and the th one of the things that we are 
kind of obsessed with, uh, you know, as as readers right now. What is it about this genre, um, first off, that fascinates you? And what do you think it is about us in general that keep wanting to go back and explore these times that that maybe we we don't get enough uh, time to learn about in history and school because, uh, you know, time is just too short to learn everything about everything. Um, but, you know, historical fiction allows us to to kind of walk around in the shoes of of some of the characters back then. Uh, what is it for you and in general, do you think that we love about historical fiction? Well, I think you nailed it as far as walking around in the shoes. I think, you know, maybe partly, certainly this year when we've all wanted to travel and most of us couldn't, um, it's a way to travel and, of course, travel back in time. I think, too, for me, part of the appeal is um, maybe in some ways we can see things more clearly in retrospect. Um, even some of the same issues I know under Gilded Moon said in the 1890s, it was so striking how many um, that we're still dealing with today. These ugly cultural debates and battles, you know, were being debated very hotly in the 1890s. And it's fascinating to see, you know, what we got right then and what we got wrong. And, um, and I think somehow we're all a little less defensive, you know, when we're looking at the past and able to analyze. Um, I know one of, one of the villains in that novel, um, Andrew Gilded Moon, is um, someone I'd never heard of before named Madison Grant. He was well-known at the time. He was very prominent in New York circles, society circles. And um, he uh, increasingly heard obsessed with eugenics. And by the time he got to the 1920s, which is after the, this novel closes, but he was certainly on the track, um, he had written a book that um, Adolf Hitler wrote him a fan letter for. And it was very much part of the, you know, sort of the, um, the leaning toward genocide and very much white supremacy and um, just scary, scary stuff. But, you know, it's just, I, 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 why have we never heard this man before? Right. Needing to go back. And um, it, it's an interesting question. I, I, uh, I think just historical fiction, you know, it's especially as you say, you know, you fly through it in high school and um, your dutiful, you know, football coach who's trying his best to teach, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and you get a taste maybe at the time. But if you're like me, I was I was so spaced out in high school. I was so much just interested in the next football game. I, I don't know how much I was paying attention. So for me, it's getting a chance to go back and really learn the history of some of these eras that I Maybe didn't get too far, didn't get too deep in the first time, even though my teacher might have been doing a great job. So from this experience that you had um, as a as a, a young uh, woman it, where uh, you got a, a firsthand glimpse at Biltmore House and, and got to experience um, that. Was this something that just kept kept pulling at you through the years? You know, I need to go back and and and. And, and find out more about this magical place, you know, in the North uh, Carolina Hills. Um, what was the draw for you that, that kept pulling you back there? You know, it really did. Mostly the mountains itself. I, my family accuses me of just choosing book subjects based on where I would like to vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad idea, actually. Right, right. So 
partly fair, um, but I just, you know, those mountains to me are just have this almost mystical pull. And um, one time, several years ago, I was actually touring Biltmore just as a visitor and, you know, fascinated by it and was going on a tour of the grounds about how, um, how George Vanderbilt actually acquired the land, that kind of thing. And it was one of these great tour guides who's just really into his job. You know, he just, he's just gonna, he's gonna tell you everything he knows and more. And um, he uh, mentioned that toward the end, Vanderbilt had had, uh, well, at the beginning, Charles McNamee was Vanderbilt's agent and went around and bought the land for him so that it wouldn't be as obvious that this was Vanderbilt money behind this, buying up all this land. It was 125,000 acres, I believe, at its apex. Um, but toward the end, they were had trouble with just a few families who money was just no motivator, you know, which I just love. They just, they weren't interested in money, no matter how much the price kept being raised, um, the offer. And they just wanted to keep the family farms. They'd lived there for generations and didn't want to move and didn't care how much money they were offered. And that's when that really clicked for me, because as you well know, um, a novel's just an idea, as long as it's just kind of facts on a page, but it's that moment when you get the conflict that it starts becoming a story. And that was the moment for me when I began to picture this young woman who sort of had a foot in both worlds. She was educated and had lived in New York and could move in the gilded wealth, those circles of George Vanderbilt. But she was also from um, the Appalachians and she had this family farm that she did not want to give up and it didn't matter how much money George Vanderbilt offered. So that was, she's a fictional character. A lot of the uh, characters in this novel are based on actual people. She's fictional. Um, and uh, anyway, that Carrie McGregor is her name. So that's the moment when that really took off. But um, you're right. There, there are usually several moments, aren't there? When, uh, well, speaking of um, the Appalachians, um, Fiona Davis, um, who, who we mentioned earlier, uh, called it Crawdads Meet the Crawleys. Um, which which is hilarious to me um, because, you know, the American South is a very specific setting. And then when you then when you take the subset of the Appalachians, uh, that's that's a, a, a very specific place. And it uh, it brings very specific um, kind of um, um, reactions and realizations. Um, what is it about this setting that that is so magical? You know, I think it's just that, and Fiona certainly did me a great favor by, by wording it that way. I, and I love her writing. I love her as a person. Um, but it, I think it is that that tension and that um, the um, the combination of just the immense wealth, the glamour, the um, the art, the artistry of a place like Biltmore, where there's just so much attention to every detail and it's very much, you know, the Downton Abbey of America, really. Um, and the landscaping, um, of course, by the same man who did, um, who did so many other Frederick Law Olmsted, who did so many other like Central Park, so many other great American landmarks. Um, so there's that. And then there's this Appalachian culture, this very fiercely independent culture of uh, people who made 
everything they used, you know, all their tools and who almost didn't use money at all, just had this barter economy. And, you know, I mean, trying to imagine, trying to, as you put it, trying to put yourself in in the shoes of someone and walk around, trying to imagine what that must have been like, the amount of change, the trains coming in, the um, people with so much money coming in, um, you know, and just the kind of conflict you would feel. Um, but just the, you know, admiring from both sides, admiring, um, you know, how many jobs Biltmore has brought to North Carolina and just the beauty of that, the architectural magnificence, the French Renaissance, you know, um, but also just the natural beauty and the um, the ferocious independence of the Appalachian culture. And I spent a ton of time reading old fire journals. Um, oh, yeah, those are fantastic. Fascinating, you know, trying to learn how do you, you know, how do you make bootlaces from squirrel hide and how do you make a banjo from a gourd and, you know, right. all wonderful, um, wonderful that mostly have have disappeared. The character of Carrie McGregor, um, was she a real person or is, is she one of these people that, that you created to, to to flesh out the story? You know, she is fictional, but she my own great grandmother actually um, went from she was living in Birmingham, Alabama. And as a young woman, she had a speaker come to her church in little Birmingham and um, asked people to come teach in the Appalachians. They needed young women to come be teachers, kind of in the like the the, t- the old TV series and the wonderful book, um, Christy. Um, she went and she did that and she had all kinds of wonderful stories she used to tell to the family. Um, so there's a little bit of, of um, in fact, I named the school teacher in the novel, Annie Lizzie Hop- Hopson, after my great-grandmother. Um, but so there's a little bit of that. And, and I grew up in the East Tennessee mountains and um, mostly where I grew up was, you know, just suburban sort of a bedroom community of Chattanooga. Yeah. But there were a lot of kids who went to our, especially our elementary school and our middle school who really were part of that mountaineer culture that had, you know, went back for generations and was very much its own, um, own population sort of insulated and, um, ferociously independent so um whether it was the language you know even even trying to study Appalachian speech to get those characters right it was striking to me how much of that speech was just part of what I grew up with you know that that was not foreign at all it was kind of striking that um I grew up in sort of this odd you know half sort of middle class you know, suburban community, but also with a foot definitely in the very much, you know, mountaineer culture, the, um, complete with moonshine still woods, you know, that you would occasionally stumble onto if you're out hiking. I love it. Um, Under a Gilded Moon is out available everywhere now in Kindle edition, or uh, if you if you prefer a hard copy to hold in your hand uh, and audio book, uh, any way that you consume books, you can now grab under a gilded moon. I promise this is one of the most fascinating reads that you'll pick up this year. Um, Joy, if people are just discovering you uh, and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Oh, thanks, Hank. Um, my website is joyjordanlight.com. And thanks to a woman named Judy Collins, who just completely redid it. It's got all sorts of backstory and historical timelines and gorgeous photography. So that's a great way 
um, to connect with me there. We'll put links to that in the show notes, as well as links where people can uh, pop over and buy the book. And, uh, and you know, there's still time uh, to uh, to order a copy of Under a Gilded Moon as a Christmas present. Don't forget that. Uh, Joy, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Thank you so much, Hank. It's a pleasure. I'm just so honored you asked me. Thank you. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Bone Thief, John Driscoll, Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.